This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It was an explosive report, an account by the military of abuse of residents in five Ontario long-term care homes during the pandemic. Released on Tuesday... Armed Forces members detail deplorable and disturbing situations. Residents being left in soiled diapers, aggressive feeding of residents leading to choking, residents calling for help unanswered for up to two hours, cockroaches and insect infestations, and rotten food, among other disgusting scenarios. So what will be done? Premier Doug Ford says he will do everything in his power to correct this situation. On Wednesday, we gathered a panel of experts to talk about the horrid situation, which is not coming as a surprise to many who work in long-term care. Libby Snymer spoke with Graham Webb, Executive Director of Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. One of the things I can say I was honestly shocked by, Libby, is the fact that in spite of the fact that the military was in these homes, Uh, there was still gross negligence and abuse that went on. And it was almost as if the staff there were impervious to the military even being there. And, you know, that just speaks to how, you know, devastated these these homes have been by COVID-19. Lisa, was there anything in there that surprised you? This report confirmed my worst fears. When we were hearing about stories in Italy and Quebec, And then I started getting calls from my members and hearing that some of them were down by 80% of their staff. I thought we need to get staff into these homes or else it's going to be really bad. And so we have worked um, tirelessly with our members to do that. Uh, And it, it it is shocking and very upsetting to read the report. But unfortunately, I'm not completely surprised. Graham, is there anything in there that surprised you? In terms of the content of the report, uh, no. Uh, I've been uh, working since 1995 in this area. I'm familiar with uh, four of the five homes, and I have worked on cases that have uh, this type of neglect and abuse or worse in these very homes. And so I'm not surprised. The only thing that surprises me is that uh, the military was there for only two weeks before they uh, they blew the top and said, uh, we got to report this. And also the uh, bluntness of the language and the detail of the, the detail of the observations. And also with great gratitude that they didn't go through the normal channels. They went right through the military and uh, it didn't get shoved under the rug. Well, yes, I was, I was going to ask you that, uh, Graham, because uh, your colleague Jane Metis has said that if that report, she believes that if that report had been filed with the Ministry of Long-Term Care, we would never have found out about it. That's our belief, yes. Uh, we have reported things uh, 
uh, of abuse and neglect in long-term care homes, and we seldom see any uh, spotlight or action. And so um, I am always dismayed that we have these conditions in long-term care homes in Ontario. I grieve over what I read in this report, and at the same time, I'm relieved that there's now a large spotlight shining on this, because I think this is a moment for opportunity for change. What would you like to leave us with, starting with Marissa? You know, one thing that I've come to learn in this role is, you know, this is very personal for people. And and we're talking about human beings. We're talking about moms and dads, brothers and sisters, grandmothers and grandfathers. And I think we've we've lost sight. We've we've in some ways reduced them to a statistic in some of the reporting. And and we've lost sight of the fact that long term care is someone's home and it should be the kind of place that you would want to live in. And right now, a lot of these homes, they're simply not. Lisa. So uh, all I can say is that we need to change the system. We cannot wait any longer. We need to get more resources. And also we need to thank the staff that have stayed in the homes and worked through COVID-19. I mean, there are some horrible stories that we've been hearing, but there's also some amazing heroes, many, many amazing heroes. And shout out to them, to all the nurses, PSWs, and frontline staff, uh, and management who have stuck it out in long-term care. Graham. This is something that affects everybody. Almost everyone knows someone in their circle of family or, or friends who has been affected by this particular crisis in long-term care homes. And this is not a COVID problem. This is a long-term care problem. COVID is the stress that has laid bare the problems and brought them to everyone's attention. Graham Webb, Executive Director of Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. Lisa Levin, Chief Executive Officer of Advantage Ontario. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Thursday, Fight Back examined the fallout from the B.C. Supreme Court decision on Wednesday that extradition proceedings for Huawei Executive Meng Wenzhou will go ahead. Associate Chief Justice Heather Holmes ruled that a key legal test to extradite had been met. The criminal conduct alleged by the United States must also be considered criminal in Canada. There will no doubt be more economic consequences. Canadian businesses are already hit hard with a 43% decline in bilateral dealings in 2019. And what about the two Michaels? Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig have been held in harsh Chinese jails, apparently in retaliation for 538 days now. In the midst of all this, China is cracking down on Hong Kong. Libby was joined for a discussion on the decision by Charles Burton, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and expert on Canada-China relations, and Chuck Kwan, chair of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I think it was a very well-argued judicial decision, which suggests that the double criminality provisions of our extradition treaty with the United States apply in this case, that what the United States is alleging uh, Ms. Meng did uh, is also something that would be criminal in Canada, which is bank fraud. Um, you know, in terms of the of the relationship between Canada and China, if there had been a determination by Justice Holmes that 
Ms. Meng should be um, allowed to go back to China, that the extradition um, doesn't stand up in terms of the terms of the treaty. I don't think that necessarily would have been a good thing. Um, as we know, the Chinese government staged a photo op showing of various people um, not social distancing, incidentally, uh, um, holding up victory signs and celebrating Ms. Meng's release, and that could have further emboldened the Chinese government to believe that their policy of imposing arbitrary non-tariff barriers to violate Canadian um, and Chinese trade contracts resulting in losses of billions of dollars to farmers and their policy of uh, hostage um, uh, diplomacy to try and pressure the Canadian government was successful. I, I want to get to that in a moment, but first let's bring uh, Chuck in. What's your reaction to this decision? I think personally that this is the right decision for, for the judge to be making, as uh, Charles have said. Certainly, uh, in the heart of my heart, I wish it would have gone differently just because, um, you know, we have the two Michaels to think about. But I want to draw your attention to that photo op uh, on Saturday, you know, three days before the uh, so-called quote-unquote expected victory. Uh, it just shows you the arrogance of how China is now dealing with uh, middle power like Canada. Um, if you would notice in the last year or two, China has been using languages like admit your fault or admit to a mistake and correct your mistakes before we get punished, you know, you get punished. This is the language that a, 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 a principal will use on a student or, or a very paternalistic father will use on his, his children. And this is the way that, unfortunately, China is treating uh, Canada like a little kid that needs to, needs to obey. Uh, a pathetic clown. It's a clown. And <laughs> yeah, then, I mean... so, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's really, really awful. Um, and, you know, no defense of China, but obviously our neighbors to the south is also acting a very belligerent way. So we're caught between two belligerent bullies. And this is something that I, I, I'm not uh, very optimistic that this will resolve soon. How is this going to impact the two Michaels, Chuck? I don't think we have uh, any uh, way of impacting the two Michaels case. I think this we're pretty much up to the mercy of um, China. Uh, I agree with Charles. Uh, we need to stand up and start doing more concrete action in censoring China. And uh, China will, will respect a strong opposition. Uh, otherwise, they will just continue to bully us. And Charles, the two Michaels? I'm very worried about uh, what the Chinese government is going to do to these uh, two innocent, upstanding um, Canadian citizens. And I think that Canada really has to, um, instead of trying to engage through quiet diplomacy or policy of appeasement to try and uh, jolly the Chinese along to release them, that we have to start uh, engaging in substantive retaliation to demand that uh, Kovrig and Saver be released back to Canada as soon as possible while they're still in good health. Charles Burton, senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and expert on Canada-China relations, and Chuck Kwan, chair of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. How many weddings are being affected by the COVID-19 crisis, and what are couples deciding in the midst of the pandemic? 
Expensive plans are either on hold or the celebrations are going virtual, with a lot of money lost because of canceled venues, catering, flowers, dresses, tuxedos, etc. The wedding business is worth about $5 billion here in Canada, and it would be in high gear right now with most weddings taking place between June and September. Libby Snymer spoke with Melissa Samborski, a wedding planner and owner of One Fine Day event planning and design, and Erin Maranka, who is scheduled to get married in September. We're essentially on hold waiting to hear from our venue uh, around whether or not the wedding is happening in September where it's scheduled. Since March, we've really just been told that our venue is working seven weeks out. And by that, they mean they're contacting couples who are scheduled to get married up to seven weeks from today, for example, with alternative dates for their weddings. And what that means for us is we won't know whether our wedding is happening or being pushed out until around the middle of July. So really uncertain right now with what's happening with our wedding. It does seem like they're really just trying to keep our wedding with this venue. And we have not yet talked about canceling the wedding and getting a refund. We really don't want to push it out another year to September 2021 we're looking to start a family soon. We've been together for years now. We are just so looking forward to getting married. And when you spent so much time, energy, emotion, and money into meticulously planning your wedding for a specific date, and you've communicated this with loved ones, it's really hard to let go of that vision and accept that your wedding will be more than a year away now. So we're definitely open to canceling our wedding at this venue and doing something perhaps smaller, more intimate. And those who can't come yet, either including them virtually um, or down the line, if we want to have another celebration that we're open to that, but we just don't want to be held to this venue if it's not going to be the way that we intended it to be. And if it's going to be over a year from now. Okay, let's bring in Melissa Samborski. This is your business. You're a wedding planner, and, and there, there are no weddings happening. Or That's right, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Tell me a little bit about your situation. So right now, we're basically just working with all of our couples from the spring and summer, and they are postponing their dates to either later in the fall, and a lot of them are looking at pushing into the winter months so that they don't have to wait a year from now. And then now we're focusing on some of the later summer weddings to look at moving to next spring or next summer. Melissa, in terms of your income, is it sort of gone from your income to zero in a big hurry? Pretty much. I think the whole industry has gone from 100 to zero very quickly, um, just based on what's happening. But we're being understanding with couples and, and shifting deposits to their new dates. And then it's, you know, we're all in the same boat. We're in this together. It's just unfortunate the situation that we're all in right now. Are couples open to moving their dates or are they more inclined to see uh, those very, very pared down weddings that we've been seeing? Either they've gone virtual with just an officiant or uh, I, I thought they were adorable. I saw, I think they were from the United States. These weddings, like we got married, we got married on the sidewalk. Right. I think you're seeing a mixed group of every couple is different. You're seeing some couples that really just want to get married this year. So they're going to hold out for their date, but do it just with their parents, grandparents, more like a civil ceremony and then save the party for next year. Then you're seeing some couples who are just moving everything to next year because they just want the whole wedding as the way they planned it. Melissa, what is your situation? What are you hoping for? I think we're hoping for couples just to say, 
as positive as they can in this really hard time, but know that they will get married. We can't say when, but we know you will get married. It will be amazing. And just stick together and have a self-esteem that you're both happy with and just communicate throughout this whole process and just uh, stay positive. And Aaron, first of all, congratulations on your upcoming marriage and whatever wedding you Thank end up you. with. What would what would you like to leave us with? Um, you know, just that we know love is not canceled and, and we don't take for granted the fact that we're healthy and, and we're still in love. And at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. So whether or not we're able to cancel, postpone, we love each other and, and we'll one way or another, we'll we'll find a way to get married when we want, how we want. So I would just wish the same encouragement onto everybody else who's going through this at this time. Erin Moranka, who is scheduled to get married in September, and Melissa Samborski, a wedding planner and owner of One Fine Day Event Planning and Design. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Throughout the pandemic, we've been relying on our pharmacists more than ever. Unlike doctor's offices, which are mostly operating only virtually, pharmacies have remained open, and pharmacists are on the job assisting us. Joining Libby on Wednesday, Shalita Datani, Director, Practice Development and Knowledge Translation with the Canadian Pharmacists Association. We consider ourselves primary care providers out in the community, just like our physician and nursing counterparts. And I'm really proud of all of my, you know, pharmacist colleagues across the country who have been, um, you know, serving Canadians uh, despite, you know, their own sort of um, fears and anxieties of not having enough personal protective equipment and all of the other things that I'm sure you've heard lots about. I think pharmacists, because they, um, you know, uh, don't work for the public health care system, don't have as much sort of allocated supply across the country from the government um, as other health care providers might. And there are often situations where pharmacists uh, are in, um, you know, these are dynamic environments. People come in, they may be symptomatic, they may have questions for their pharmacist, they may need an immunization. And so uh, pharmacists need to ensure that they're protecting their patients and protecting themselves by wearing PPE. But uh, it has throughout the crisis, the last two months anyway, been quite a challenge to be able to get masks and the other forms of personal protective equipment uh, that pharmacists need. What have you found to be the biggest challenge of functioning during the pandemic? I think that PPE is probably one of the biggest ones. Um, I think that drug shortages and some of the what we saw early on in the pandemic with respect to, um, you know, people, you know, understandably wanting to do things like stockpile their medication, just like they you know, they were worried that they wouldn't be able to get their medication as they started to see things like, like toilet paper not being on the shelves. They worried that, you know, what if I can't get my medication? So I think because of early stockpiling and because of a drug shortage problem that we've already had for a number of years in this country, I, I think this has been a, an ongoing concern for us. Um, and so we put in some things in place that are now starting to get lifted in terms of 30-day supplies. Uh, but I, we do believe that they help stabilize the drug supply. It, it's something that we always have to be on top of to make sure that we are able to get everyone the medications they need and, and do what we can to mitigate and minimize the impact of drug shortages. What's the best way to access a delivery? 
Well, the best thing is to just to contact your pharmacy. And, and I think most pharmacies have really stepped up and, you know, really absorbed, you know, at their own cost, um, being able to make sure that their patients get the medications that they need. So if they're distancing or quarantining or they're sick or they just are afraid to come to the pharmacy, that relationship with the pharmacist to organize, you know, getting that medication either via delivery to the home or curbside delivery, so you don't have to actually come into the pharmacy. Um, I, I would say there's been, again, some tremendous effort to work with the public and work with patients to, to make sure that they can help them with that. So I would say the first thing is to call call your pharmacy and, and, and um, you know, find out if they can deliver medications to you. Most of them will do that. Are you confident that we will have enough supply just of the regular flu shots? That's a really good question, and we are definitely worried about supply. We already know that there are some challenges, again, in countries like Australia. We are having those conversations now with our public health counterparts nationally, and our pharmacy colleagues are doing the same provincially across all of the provinces. Uh, so we are, um, you know, putting the radar out certainly that we need to ensure that Canada has enough supply um, and that pharmacy as, as, a, as an important, uh, you know, site of getting your flu shot um, has early and it, access to that supply so that we can come right out of the gate when flu season starts and, and roll up our sleeves and start getting all these folks immunized. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I just want to thank, um, you know, all the Canadians out there and all of the pharmacists for, for standing up and going to work every day and, you know, assuaging fears and, you know, you know, continuing to leave themselves vulnerable and their families vulnerable while they continue to provide care to patients and, and let everybody know that your pharmacist is there for you. So please don't hesitate in going to talk to them. Shalita Datani, Director, Practice Development and Knowledge Translation with the Canadian Pharmacists Association. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. After going through the audio, here are some of the best calls of the week. David in Queensville called about the situation between China and Canada, given the ongoing extradition proceedings against Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. It is not the good Chinese people and American people we're being victimized by. Yep. So we need positive propaganda. We need truth from Canada to the Chinese and American citizens, especially the younger generations. We need it in our own country because of the divide between Zoomers, Millennials, and uh, Doomer Gloomers. So explaining our situation that we're caught between these governments, these these bad governments, prevent the escalation and, and focus more on education. Clay in Ajax called to say the long-term care minister should be fired after what came out in the military report on five Ontario long-term care homes. As far as I'm concerned, I go along. I don't, I don't usually agree with Horvath, but Fullerton should be fired as well as the inspector that was responsible for Orchard Villa that 125 infractions 52 weeks a year means once every 13 weeks they're inspected, possibly. What else were they doing? Now, like I said, I don't often agree with Horvath, but I agree with the firing of Fullerton, as well as a specific inspector that was at fault with the incident at uh, Orchard Villa. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Betty in Niagara-on-the-Lake, who says she has first-hand knowledge of the dire situation in some nursing homes. All the government predecessors knew. They've known for years 
there's been so many investigations. There's so many advocacy groups that have notified the government about this. Nobody listens. This is great that the military has blown the whistle, um, but right away, immediately, they could uh, legislate uh, annual inspections. That they and I know some of the people don't. They're, they're not the greatest. They're they're a bit of a joke, but at least they were getting in there uh, annually because the residents can't. Some of them can't complain themselves. Uh, increased wages for the PSWs. Work, have them working in one home. Just some of the things they've implemented now with COVID. Keep that. That should be permanent. Um, and increase the hours of care. I, I take care of a woman in a nursing home who, uh, and I've been told by the PSWs, 12 minutes to get them up, dressed, and uh, in the dining room for breakfast. It's impossible to do what they, they're doing. Every home isn't in the kind of condition that these uh, the military had discovered. But there is a lot of neglect and abuse going on in nursing homes. And as I said, it's been going on for decades. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.